0: Well, um, my least favorite year of high school was the 10th grade year. And, you know, if you think about it, as a freshman, when you come into high school, it's a new environment, it's a new school, uh, everything's changing, it's kind of got this allure, this excitement to it, you're adjusting to all kinds of different things, and you know, when you're juniors or when you're seniors, you're upperclassmen, you get some perks and some things that are different. Uh, but when you're a sophomore, when you're in 10th grade, th- there's really not a whole lot going on. You're just kind of this weird holding pattern, and it seemed just kind of boring and monotonous. Except for, like, you get your driver's license. That's about the only thing that happens in 10th grade, usually. Uh, and if you're uh, in my day... We were excited, you know, your parents had to take the day off of work that day because you were going to the DMV, you'd sit there all day if it took it because you were coming out of there with a license because that was like the thing you look forward to for countless days and weeks and months and even years. It's different now, kids aren't necessarily like that. I've, I'm amazed at how many teenagers are not eager to go get their license these days. For some reason it's different, but 10th grade, it just wasn't my favorite year and uh, God is in a weird way just, um, he has a quite a sense of humor. And so ironically, my latest, uh, my, my job that I have now that I recently started uh, has basically turned me back into a 10th grade student. Uh, that's essentially what I do. I go to 10th grade classes all day long with the students that I'm responsible for. And I sit in English classes and math classes and science classes and history classes and uh, I basically am a 10th grade student alongside of other 10th grade students that I have to help. and. Um, It's better this time around. It's different. Uh, It's interesting, and I love it. Uh, I love what we do, but uh, I sit in three periods of English, 10th grade English, and I wasn't super thrilled about English when I was in 10th grade, and you know, it's about the same. It's 10th grade English, and so uh, luckily, I land in three of those every single day, Uh, and so recently, in the past few weeks, though, they started a unit where they were going to read this book. And talk about it and think through it and look at different themes and character progressions and all these different things that go along with English at that level. And the book is called Night by Elie Wiesel. And you may know this book, you may not, but this is a man who was a Holocaust survivor. And the book just goes through uh, chronologically how that process played out for him and his family starting with being in their own home in Saget and how they were come uh, uh, the uh german forces would come and take them and remove them from their home and move them into the ghettos and from the ghettos eventually to what was known as one of the most horrific and brutal places of all the concentration camps known as Auschwitz uh, which had several different camps, sub-camps within it. Uh, and so he goes through it, he tells his story. It's an autobiographical account. He's telling the narrative as you're going through. Um, and so as you would imagine, sitting through three periods every day, three hours of the same thing, uh, it would kind of become just monotonous and, and I would lose focus and kind of find other things to uh, spend my time doing after the first period when I had what I needed for my job. Uh, but it wasn't like that during this month. Uh, this month was different I would uh, spend the first period making sure I had everything I needed for my students. And then in the second and third period that I was in there, I found myself just kind of enamored and getting lost in the whole conversation of what uh, we were talking about. Just because it was such a heavy thing, but also such an intriguing thing. Uh, And one of the things that they were discussing was this character progression of the actual author of the story, Ellie, who was talking about, and and where it shows up throughout the book, all throughout the book, uh, this progression of his faith as he goes through this concentration camp experience. And for Elie Wiesel, unfortunately, as uh, he is surrounded by torture, and not just torture, but the imminence of death at everywhere that you look. It was everywhere. It was all around them. Whether it was your own death, or it was the death of somebody next to you. Uh, they were constantly imposed this notion that death is just right around the corner. And the difficulty of that weighed on him, and over time, throughout his time that he spent in the camps, he would talk about how his faith continually would just diminish. And it gripped me, because I thought about it, I was like, man, the amount of suffering. One day in Auschwitz, I couldn't even begin to imagine what they would experience, and the story is too gruesome to tell here, Uh, but the book is very interesting if you ever want to read it. it was almost just like my heart was just sad for the last month every time I sat in there. But it was sad for multiple reasons. I hate that somebody would have to go through something like that, but it was also sad because the very, very thing that Ellie had that the, the German soldiers couldn't take from him was his faith. In order for his faith to diminish, and ultimately he would say he kind of let go of it all together, in order for that to happen, he had to willingly let it go. Faith was the one thing they couldn't take from him, and he let it go in the midst, in the face of all that suffering and death. And I'm not, I'm not surprised by it. I'm not. I'm not faulting him or blaming him. I just saddened my heart. It was just like, man, that's. It shouldn't be that way, you know. Life shouldn't be able to take the very thing that we value the most. Uh, his suffering really just kind of shaped his view of faith, rather than the other way around. Rather than his faith shaping his view of suffering, and it took it from. Um, And so just for the last few weeks, I've been sitting in that room. It's just been heavy. uh, As the kids are just writing, relentlessly getting the notes they need just to make the grade that they need, I've spent that time really just pondering things like faith and suffering in the world around us. Um, The Bible has a lot to say about faith, and especially faith in the midst of suffering. And so today, I just want to walk through some of that with you uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. In your bulletin, it says chapter 10, starting verse 19. We're going to back up a little bit, though, this morning. We're going to start in verse 1, uh, because I think the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who actually wrote Hebrews, although we suspect uh, uh, some key people, but uh, the writers of Hebrews is brilliant. Um, The way that it's written and the way that the thoughts flow together, I just, I love it. And so uh, today, chapter 10, verse 1, I just want to start reading this to you. for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins consequently when christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come to do your will o god as it is written of me in the scroll of the book when he said above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings of sin and sin offerings Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So let's just stop right there for just a second. Uh, I, again, like I said, the writer of Hebrews, I love it. He's so creative. It's so just, I love the way they write. Uh, he's putting a a contrast here he's talking about two different types of offerings Uh, clearly he's talking about offerings of the old from the old testament system and then he's also bringing reference to the offering that christ made and he's setting this up in a contrast and what he's trying to get us to see is this they're different there's two real clear distinctives going on here the first is this one the sacrifices are different and two jesus is better the sacrifice of jesus is better how are they different how are they different They're different because priests would line up day in and day out and they would have to continually make sacrifices. You would have to come and bring your offerings. You would hope that you could make your sins based on the sacrifices that would continually have to be made. Under Jesus, that didn't have to keep happening. It happened once and for all, it says. They're different. We said the other distinctive is this. Jesus is better. His sacrifice is better. How so? Because his sacrifice was not just enough for you to go and make atonement for your own sins. His sacrifice was enough to make atonement for all sins, for all humanity, for all eternity. The point that the writer in Hebrews is trying to make here is, hey, Jesus came and did a thing and it's a big deal. Pay close attention. Because this contrast, this sacrifice, this Jesus that we're talking about, now brings something to the table that offers something to you and me like nothing else in all of humanity and all of history ever has before so let's look closely that's what he's setting up let's keep reading verse 19 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh since we have a great priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith You see, because Christ's sacrifice is so significant, he offers us a few things here. Because of his atoning sacrifice, our assurance of faith is strong. This is important. It's important for us to live a daily life in the Christian walk, in the world that we live in, and know that our faith can be strong because of this. Think about what he affords us. Just think about these things. What did they list here? Number one, we can come to God. We have access to God. We can actually enter a building, much like this one right here, in this very moment, in this very morning, and approach God. That's a big deal. We're clean before Him. That wasn't a thing that happened before. But because Jesus came and covered us with His blood, God no longer sees the sins that must be atoned for. He sees the cleanliness and the purity of who His Son is in us. That's a big deal, y'all. We can hope confidently. I struggle with this one sometimes, y'all. I'm not always super confident in the things that I hope in, and it's a tragedy, because the scriptures clearly lay out for us because the atoning work of Jesus Christ, I can. I can do those things. We can love good works because they help us thrive in life. We don't do good works because we have to be good little boys and girls for God. Otherwise, he'll strike us down. We don't have to live in fear of the fact that whether or not we've tipped the scales correctly in the direction that God would want for us. We love to do the work of the Holy Spirit in and among us because it's the way that we thrive in life. And Jesus' sacrifice allows us and gives us the opportunity to fall in love with that. We can fall in love with the church, too. It says, don't give up the meeting together. I mean, people do this, right? Church can kind of be take it or leave it for people. I get that. But the scriptures make it clear that Christ's sacrifice did a thing for us as the body of Christ, which is this. It allows us to love the chance to gather and do this right here. I love being here. In fact, when I'm not here, I hate it. I actually couldn't be here this past Wednesday. I've been leading the uh, small group on Wednesdays lately and uh, had to be out this week for a situation that I had to do for school and uh, I hated it. It was awful. Uh, There's a group of people that sit in this circle and we just kind of share about what life is doing throughout our week. And we just talk about things that are valuable to us and how it shapes us and how it moves us. It's so encouraging to me. And I keep telling them, I sound like a broken record to them. I'm sure they're like, man, just give it up already. We get it. We heard you the first 12 weeks. Uh, Stop saying it. But I can't stop saying it. Every time we gather together, I want them to know how valuable it is for me to be able to get to do this. It just, it means so much to me. Uh, Because God has allowed us to fall in love with his church through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's valuable, y'all. It's a big deal. The fulfilled life that we all want, it begins with the atoning work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the writer's saying. And he's just setting these things up piece by piece. Let's keep reading 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And he has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When I read that verse right there, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. I get that sentence, right? That makes sense to us. Um, I love the way he's not pulling any punches here. He's telling you straight up, hey, you need to understand the contrast that's existed here. This idea that Jesus and his atoning work for you and me is enough and that's the place to put your hope or your other choice, you can can reject it. You can live as though it doesn't matter. All these things that he already just previously listed out as why it's a big deal and why it's important and why it's so valuable are the ways in which we thrive in this life. Or, You can choose to neglect that. You can choose to go the other way on that. But at the end of the day, know who you're dealing with because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That stirs me up in a way that makes me think long and hard about what he's putting on the page here. But look what he says in verse 32 But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who, who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Just side note here, that sounds strange to me. That's a weird thing to say, right? The joyful acceptance of somebody just taking and plundering your property... And this is how he ends this section. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Guys, the reality reality is suffering exists in the world. I don't think this is a surprise to any of us. If we polled everybody in this room and we just lined you up and we said, one by one, tell your stories of suffering. Come through and let's talk about the ways in which suffering has gripped your life and my life and the lives of those around us. We could spend all day in here just bemoaning and begrudging the things that are difficult in this world. Suffering is a real thing and it exists but this very passage says this. Even though it exists and even though it is real, those who are in faith, those who see the choice of who God is and what he's done and who accept it in faith, they don't shrink away when suffering comes their way. Seems like a hard thing. They endure. They endure because they know the victory that's been won for them and what it means for them. They seem to have this eternal understanding of what's been offered through this faith that they have. And this understanding, it it shapes us, right? It reorients us. It changes us. It makes us different people. It gives us confidence, right? It changes the way we look at things like, like death, like this story that we've been sitting in for weeks and weeks in this classroom. I look at it, and all the people that are sitting in there, they're talking about, man, this is heavy. This is grotesque. This is brutal. Uh, they don't even want to sit and think about it because it's so overwhelming and so just, it's a lot, but people of faith who understand what we're talking about in Hebrews here, it reshapes even the way that they would see something like that. There's this hymn that was written long ago. It's a wonderful hymn. The day of it is this. It is not death to die. I just want to read a few lyrics of it to you. It says this. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears, and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. Fears often so much tied to suffering. And I get it, okay? Like, I, I don't want to make this just mechanical and robotic today. I, I want you to understand that like I'm right here and I struggle with this. Uh, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. There's plenty of things that I, I look forward to every day. As a father, I can just tell you, uh, I, I want to see my kids grow up. I do. Am I afraid of dying? I don't think so, but at the end of the day, there's a part of me as a father that really wants to see my kids grow up. Like it's a, it's a huge passion and a huge burn in my heart that I long for. I wanna see and walk my daughters down the aisle one day. I do. I, it makes me emotional to think about it. I'm not an emotional guy, like it's weird. Then I had children and all of a sudden things started happening here. Like, what is this? I don't understand these feelings. Uh, It happens to you, right? But I long to see the day where I can stand in the middle of an aisle and see that happen. It's just, it's a huge desire of mine. I have those feelings. I want to see what kind of ball player Asher turns out to be. I'm excited about it. I want to see him grow up. I want to see what kind of gymnast Sophia and Naomi might be. Those are deep-seated things in my heart, longings and desires that I have. And don't get me wrong, that stuff grips me every day. But if I hold on to those things, if I take those things and hold them over the hope that is found in heaven, then I'm going to not endure the sufferings that exist in this world. Those are going to be the things, they're beautiful things. And here's, here's why they're beautiful, because God is the giver of all great things, the Bible says. And the beauty of my children and the way that I love them and the depth of the emotion I never even knew possible until they showed up, here they are now, and just all that excitement, all the things that make me happy in this world, they're mere glimpses of the very thing that God has given us because he's the giver of all good things. And what that means is this, like all the things that bring joy to my life here and now are just a glimpse of the beauty of what it's going to be like to be with him in paradise forever. Just like he said to the man hanging on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more longing and desire. You will have the thing that you were created for and it will be the only thing you ever need. I think what's hard for us sometimes is we allow the world to reshape the reality of that into thinking that the world has good things to offer to maybe even better things. And so the reality is that life kind of pulls us away from faith in a way that it's hard to endure the sufferings that exist in this life because we're afraid it's going to take the thing away from us that we long to have in this life. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to us is this. Don't cling to the things of this life. They're good, and they're good in many ways. And love them and desire them and be excited. It's not wrong for me to want to see my kids grow up. It's not wrong for me to want to walk my daughters down the aisle. It's not wrong for me to want to sit at the ballpark and watch them play and be so proud of them and excited and just find that joy. Those are not wrong things. But if they become the thing that my hope is driven and rooted in, I will crash when difficulty comes my way. I'll fail. God's intended so much more for us. There are countless examples of this that happen all throughout, not just in scripture, but in life, right? Uh, there are people that exist in this world. I want to just explain a lot. If you go to the next chapter in Hebrews, by the way, chapter 11 in Hebrews, you may have heard of this one before. It's this faith chapter, all right? He set it all up in the chapter before, but if you go to chapter 11, he starts walking through person after person after person. Uh, Abel is in there. Abraham's in there. Moses is in there. Uh, so many different people of faith, all right? And they're experiencing difficulties around them, life circumstances that are driving them to have to figure out if they're going to endure and be faithful to the thing that God said or if they're going to crumble and fold like a cheap tent. And what Hebrews 11 begins to describe is these people endured through the hardest of things because they realized the God with whom they serve and what he's done for them and what he means to them. And it changes them. It reorients and reshapes how they see the world around them. But it's not just in chapter 11. It's not just in people in the Bible. It happens throughout the world. There are stories century after century after century of stories where people's faith has rooted in a thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that has reshaped them in a way that has given them confidence to stand in the midst of suffering in a way that I can only hope and imagine that I, I could just hope to be able to be half as bold and as brave. I, I just want to mention a couple of people to you. Uh, you, you might have heard this story. Uh, there's these two ladies. Their name were uh, Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint. Uh, these are, their names are kind of infamous in the uh, Christian circle because they were able to engage uh, a tribe in deep in the jungles of Ecuador. Uh, the Alcas, they're called. And they basically wanted to reach them, learn their language, learn their culture, and just basically live their life in the middle of the jungles of Ecuador. Not jungles like uh, just a lot of vegetation, but like no electricity, no, no running water, like very primitive lifestyle jungles in the depths of uh, Ecuador. And they did it. They were able to do it. But what makes their story really, really remarkable is they did it on the backside of their husband and their brother being murdered by the very same people. That's what made their story so unique and interesting and just very riveting because their husband and brother and the three other people were speared to death by the very same people they hoped to go in there and reach. But they didn't shrink back the way that Hebrews says. They pressed forward and said, no, these are people who need to hear the gospel. They need to be saved with the reality and the hope that we have. And so instead of cowering in the face of fear, they pushed forward and went and did it anyway. Anyway. It's truly an impressive story. Like I, I encourage you to go read about them. Uh, I, just, I just hope I could be a person that just has the, the boldness and the bravery to do something like that. I don't know if I could. I, I would hope so. It's, it's truly amazing that's not, I mean, that's a story from a long time ago, but there's other people they are still doing that this very day. Ecuador, by the way, has all kinds of um, interesting topography. There's mountainous regions, there's coastal regions, there's jungles even still today. There's villages and tribes just like the very people they reached decades and decades ago that are still living in a very primitive fashion just like that. I have a friend. He lives there. He's been there for 30 years. He gets on a little boat, and he travels up and down this river. It's called the Napo River, and he goes way, way, way in. Into the depths of the jungle to meet very same types of tribes like that, in the hopes of doing the same thing. It still exists today. Uh, He's been there for thirty years. Like I said, when he first got to Ecuador, he wasn't welcomed. It wasn't like a thing. It was like, oh, we're glad you're here. You seem like a nice guy. When he first got there, people were um, they were challenged by his presence. They didn't like the fact that he was coming into their communities and trying to plant churches and trying to spread the gospel. In fact, he tells a story one time uh, where he was just recently on the ground in Ecuador and uh, he and a partner of his were driving in a truck out to a a village up in the mountains and a mob of people basically came and surrounded his truck. And they had these megaphones and this loudspeaker and you kept hearing him say, like they were giving instructions. He's like, all they kept saying was, drag them out of the truck, light them on fire. And let's be done with this, basically, was the concept. I was like, man, that sounds pretty brutal, man. It's pretty rough. He goes, yeah. And then they dragged us out of the truck. They laid us on the hood of the truck. And they began to douse us in gasoline. And I thought, this is it. This is, we, we fulfilled our purpose. We came, we sought to spread the gospel, and this is how we go. And then all of a sudden, on the loudspeaker, over the megaphone, uh, a voice saying, don't lay a finger on them, don't harm them. He doesn't know why, he doesn't know who. As the mob dissipated, he couldn't find somebody that was there saying, I stopped it, I support you guys, I'm here for you. He has no idea why it happened, but in the midst of, and just doused in gasoline, about ready to be burned alive, something intervened. Just incredible stories. That's one story of a man that I sat across the table numerous times in my life with. He has countless stories like that of people not shrinking back in the face of fear and suffering, but pressing forward in the hope that they endure it. Uh, one time I was standing in a living room in Dubai in the Middle East, and we were there for about a week, a little over a week, meeting with Iranian pastors who had come out of Iran. They would come to Dubai because it was very, you know, inconspicuous. Uh, we would meet together there because we could train pastors. They could fly back to their home country and they could continue to try to facilitate the underground church in Iran, which was very illegal and very dangerous. Uh, but they were committed and willing, and uh, their faith was strong. It was, it was pretty amazing, uh, and I, re- I remember it like it was yesterday. And this was over ten years ago. I'm um, standing in the living. Room, we we're about to We were going back to the airport to fly back to the United States and they were about to fly back into Iran. We were praying for each other. They were praying for us and our churches here, which seemed almost disgusting to me because of how easy it was for us to be church and do church and how incredibly difficult it was for them. But they had a deep, deep sense of longing and, and wanting to pray for us and to be there for us as a church, as we were family. Um, and I remember our prayers we we would start praying, and uh all of us we kind of said it the same way we we would pray that the persecution that they were facing and it was significant uh just to just to put it mildly, it was significant um, that we would pray that that would be uh lessened or just it would be almost taken away so that they didn't have to deal with that, that they could just grow the church. And I remember him stopping us in the middle of prayer, one of the pastors, and he said, I, I hate to do this, but could you please just quit praying for the persecution to be taken away? And I just, I, I was flabbergasted. I couldn't believe what he said. I was like, why would you not want to pray for that? And his response was, the church thrives in the face of persecution in Iran. The harder the government presses, the further the gospel goes. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. We don't love it. It's not like we like being beaten and tortured and imprisoned and all these other things and our lives threatened day in and day out. It's not a fun way of life for us. But if you saw the benefits and the gains that the church had in the gospel going forward, there's no way you would pray to stop it. I left that living room and flew 17 hours in a plane. And the only thought that I had in my brain was, Josh, you are such a coward. Not because I don't love the Lord or that I don't love the gospel, but because it's such a casual thing from where we are from to want to dig in and endure in faith because it's worth it. And the reason I bring all of that up is this, that... Suffering will destroy us if we don't see the world the way that man saw it standing in that living room that night. Suffering beats us down because we can't see that the hope of heaven is bigger than the very trials that we go through. I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not trying to make light of your suffering. Please don't misunderstand me today. What I am saying is this. It's real, it happens, and it's hard. And it takes our hearts and it pulls us to a place where we question and we wonder and we think about things. And what the writer of Hebrews consistently tries to tell us, not just in this chapter, but all the way through the entire book, is this. You can hope in the God who has saved you from all eternity from the sins that break you. You can hope in that. There's another lady in Iran. Her name's Fatima. I just want to read this to you because it's amazing to me. I, I, I can't fathom this. Her earliest memories were being raped by her brothers. At the age of 11, she was sold into marriage to a young drug, drug addict who abused her and then divorced her when she was 17. Upon, upon returning home, she was raped again and then she left her home. On the streets, she heard the gospel preach and she trusted Jesus. In time, she married a Christian man. As they were receiving training in evangelism, church planting, she felt called to go back home and witness to her family. Her entire family repented and gave their lives to the Lord, and the very first church that this lady and her husband planted was in her very childhood home. It's amazing, it's incredible. What if your earliest childhood childhood memories were this dark? And maybe, maybe they are. What if that was your childhood? What would give somebody the ability to look beyond such a childhood and create different memories in that very same home? Like what would do that? Apart from the sacrifice that needs no other sacrifice ever again, apart from the atoning work of Jesus to save our souls from the depths of our sins, there's no other reason I could possibly imagine that somebody would be willing to walk back in that environment and say it's worth it. There just wouldn't be any other reason I could think of. What drives people to live for God in this way? I think it's this understanding, guys. I think it's this knowledge that it is not death to die, that you can take everything from me, just like in the book, Night, that we talked about at the beginning, just in that situation, you can beat us, you can torture us, you can starve us, you can put death all around us, you can even take the very breath that I'm breathing, but it is not death to die because you cannot take my soul and you cannot take my faith. The Bible is clear on this, the writer of Hebrews is excellent on it, and that is this, those are the things that cause us to endure the hardship of this life because we know something far greater is coming the very things that bring joy in my heart are only mere glimpses of the beauty of heaven and i think it's on us to long for heaven and it's on us as pastors and leaders in churches to convince you that that's the place that you long for because apart from that this life will be increasingly more difficult and i don't know how we make it They mentioned earlier that this is the season of Lent, and Lent is a time where we contemplate our mortality, our fragility, this living in a life and in a world where the brokenness around us, the decay of this world that sin has brought upon us, is very real and is very imminent. It's very around us. We're aware. But it's also a time for us to build towards this momentum of hope that's gonna be just celebrated like nothing else when Easter gets here. It's such an exciting season. I love it. I love it because it helps me sit in this for a moment and go, this is not all there is. There's great things here, but it's not all there is. I hope and long for something much, much bigger. My Lenten prayer for you today is this, is that you would long for and hope in the glory of knowing what Christ has done for you. And that it reshapes everything. Let's pray together, Father. You, you offer faith. You offer hope. You offer the reality that we, who believe in you, who find faith in you, can trust in. God, we confess we're not great at this. We struggle with this sometimes. And so God, i pray now as we respond to your word that you would help us find the places in our lives where we run from this thing. Maybe it's through fear. Maybe it's through neglect. Maybe it's through so many other reasons. But God, find the places where we don't necessarily think we need you and press all the more to show us that we are nothing without you. Because it's there, God, that we thrive. It's there that we come to life. It's there that we have hope and joy abounds. And we want to be people of joy. You provide those things. You are the giver of those things, not this world around us. God, help us. Help us. Amen.